Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credit for the TMA Practice Well podcasts? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash C-M-E-T-O-G-O to register for your podcast and follow the instructions that claim CME. Policies and Standards of the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the content of the CME activity. The planners and speakers of this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this podcast should not be used or referred to as a primary legal source and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Hi, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I manage the TMA Education Center and produce the TMA Practice Well podcast, where we strive to help Texas physicians and their practice thrive. I'm thrilled to introduce a special guest host for this CME to go episode, Dr. Lynn Stewart, a family medicine physician in Austin, Texas. Dr. Stewart is the 2020 to 2022 chair for the TMA Committee on Cancer. Dr. Stewart has a keen interest in helping patients overcome vaccine hesitancy and improving all vaccination rates, but especially the HPV vaccine, to help create a healthier Texas. And now, our guest host. Hello. Welcome to Vaccine Hesitancy and HPV Vaccine in Texas. In 2019, the World Health Organization listed 10 threats for global health, air pollution and climate change non-communicable diseases, the threat of a global influenza pandemic, fragile and vulnerable settings such as regions affected by drought and conflict, antimicrobial resistance, Ebola and high threat pathogens, weak primary care, vaccine hesitancy, dengue, and HIV. So what is vaccine hesitancy? Per the Strategic Advisory Group of Experts, SAGE, on immunization, an independent advisory group to the World Health Organization, vaccine hesitancy refers to a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines despite availability and quality of vaccine service. Per SAGE, vaccine hesitancy is complex and context-specific, varying across time, place, and vaccines. Since 1999, SAGE has been in charge of developing evidence-based global vaccine and immunization policies, recommendations, and strategies for the World Health Organization. SAGE is concerned with all vaccine-preventable diseases and vaccination programs for all ages in all countries. SAGE is supported by and or works in concert with a number of technical advisory committees associated with the World Health Organization. The SAGE three C's of vaccine hesitancy, complacency, confidence, and convenience. The first C of the three C's is confidence. Confidence is defined as trust in the effectiveness of the vaccines, the system that delivers them, including reliability and competence of the health services and health professionals and the motivations of the policymakers to decide on the needed vaccines. Confidence therefore varies from vaccine to vaccine, by agency, by policy, by cultural group, and by geographical area. The second C is complacency. 
Complacency exists where perceived risks of vaccine-preventable diseases are low, and vaccine is not deemed a necessary preventative action. Complacency about a particular vaccine or about vaccination in general is influenced by many factors, including other life or health responsibilities that may seem more important at that time to the patient. Complacency determines a vaccine program's success or failure to a large degree in Texas. Successful vaccines paradoxically result in complacency and ultimately hesitancy as individuals weigh risks of vaccination with a particular vaccine against the disease the vaccine prevents if that disease is no longer seen as a threat. The best example of this would be um, the measles vaccine. Most people haven't seen a case of measles in their lifetime. They aren't sure perhaps if it's worth getting the measles vaccine. Uh, the vaccine's effectiveness has made people question whether or not they need the vaccine at all because they don't see the disease and they don't see how bad the disease can be. Complacency also influences the degree of hesitancy because of self-efficacy, the perceived or real ability of an individual to take action, to be vaccinated, to get vaccinated. Convenience is the third C. Convenience is a significant factor encompassing many issues that affect vaccine uptake. Physical availability of a vaccine, affordability, willingness or ability to pay, geographical accessibility, ability to understand language and health literacy, in a cultural context that is convenient and comfortable, both in time and place, and it must be perceived as a quality service. I think that uh, convenience has been a big issue with COVID vaccines here in 2021, because it was really hard to get them in the first place. They weren't physically available at the start of the year for most folks. Uh, affordability, thankfully, in the United States has not been a particular issue. Geographical accessibility, just being able to find a place that was giving shots. So you can see how convenience really impacted, at least early on, how much people were willing to accept COVID-19 vaccines. And this applies to everything, but it was so dramatic at the start of this year with COVID-19 vaccines. It makes a great example. So we see that these three things do overlap. And in a quick summary, confidence or trust in vaccines, the system that develops them, the policymakers who decide which vaccines are needed and when, a complacency, when perceived risks of vaccine-preventable diseases are low, vaccination is deemed not necessary or important. Uh, other health or life responsibilities at that time may seem more important. And then convenience, the extent to which physical availability, affordability, willingness to pay, and ability to understand language and health literacy and appeal of immunization services affects uptake. So the SAGE work, Working Group and Vaccine Hesitancy, the WG, was established in 2012. And uh, its key goal was to propose a definition of hesitancy and its scope and to develop a model to categorize factors that influence the behavioral decision to accept a vaccine. Hesitancy is on a continuum between those who accept all vaccines without any doubts to complete refusal with no doubts. And the vaccine hesitant group is everybody quite heterogeneously in between those two extremes. Some of those folks accept vaccines but have really strong doubts. Some of those folks accept some but not others. Some of those folks delay vaccines. It's a big mess in the middle. So the vaccine hesitant. Um, vaccine refusal is the visible surface of a massive iceberg of vaccine delay and hesitancy. Common concerns about, of the hesitant about vaccines include safety, necessity, timing of vaccines, concurrent administration with other vaccines. However, most vaccine hesitant parents proceed with most vaccinations, but often delay some or all vaccines. And that does leave children at risk for vaccine preventable diseases when vaccines are delayed or refused. The diversity of the vaccine hesitant is as diverse as Texans. Unlike with social determinants of health, Vaccine hesitancy determinants, like education and socioeconomic status, do not influence hesitancy in just one direction. As shown in the Commission's systemic review, higher education may be associated with lower or higher acceptance of vaccines. In contrast, as a social determinant of health, education drives in one direction. More education leads to better health outcomes. The importance of communication. 
The SAGE working group concluded that communication was a tool, but not a determinant. Communication was not a specific factor like confidence, complacency, or convenience. Uh, but if poor or inadequate, communication negatively influenced vaccination uptake and contributed to vaccine hesitancy. Poor quality services of any type, including communication, can undermine acceptance. In high-income countries with well-resourced vaccination programs, inadequate or poor immunization program communications can increase vaccine hesitancy and outright refusal. And we see this in the United States and also in Texas. Uh, regardless of the setting and causes of vaccine hesitancy, poor communication needs to be addressed generally. And in addition to developing uh, communication to address hesitancy issues and improve vaccination uptake. Within the United States, vaccine hesitancy continues to be a big issue. Overall adolescent vaccination coverage is improving in the United States, but for adolescents up to 15 years of age, there's a large gap between the rate of vaccination for human papillomavirus, HPV, the higher rates of coverage for tetanus diphtheria and acellular pertussis, otherwise known as Tdap, and meningococcal conjugate, Menactwe vaccines. Generally, the consecutive ordering of parental delay and refusal uh, described previously defined a continuum that was also associated with factors related to higher socioeconomic status. Children whose parents delayed and refused vaccines were more likely to be of non-Hispanic white race or ethnicity than those who neither delayed nor refused. Demographics are the most hesitant. Children whose parents delayed and refused vaccines were significantly more likely to live in a household with an annual income greater than 400% above the federal poverty level, have a mother who is married, greater than 30 years of age, English speaking, or a college graduate, to be covered by private health insurance, and to live in a household where there are four or more children who are age 18 years or younger. The median conscientious vaccination exemption present percentage across school systems in Texas more than doubled from 2012 through 2018, from 0.38% to 0.79%. This represented over 24,000 additional students with vaccine exemptions. 28% of private schools, 22% of charter schools, and 5% of public schools we're at risk for outbreaks of vaccine-preventable disease. And here we see the demographics self-selecting um, in that the folks who choose to send their children to private schools and charter schools are also more likely to refuse vaccines or delay vaccines. Vaccine exemptions are increasingly significantly more in suburban public school systems than in-town public school systems by a mean of 0.38 percentage points compared to 0.31 percentage points, respectively. The percentage of students in a school system that self-report as ethnically white had a stronger correlation with vaccine exclusions. What else makes parents hesitant? All 50 states have legislation requiring specified vaccines for students. Exemptions vary from state to state. All school immunization laws grant exemptions to children specifically for medical reasons. So every state will allow you to skip vaccines if there is a medical reason. However, in addition to that, there are 45 states and Washington, D.C. that grant religious exemptions for people who have religious objections to immunizations. So in Texas, there's an educational code and an administrative code that allow medical and personal or religious and philosophical exemptions for vaccines for school. Including Texas, 15 states also allow philosophical exemptions for children whose parents object to immunizations because of personal, moral, or other beliefs. This is in addition to the religious exemption that we just discussed. Many states align their vaccine requirements with recommendations from the Centers for Disease Control's Prevention Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ASIP. The different exemptions allowed. Everybody allows medical. Uh, not everybody, but a lot of states allow religious exemptions. 
And then when medical and religious exemptions were not deemed to be liberal enough, then philosophical exemptions uh, was added to those states. In Texas, all three are allowed. The states in the Northeast, most of them uh, allow religious exemptions, but very few of them allow personal belief exemptions. And the territories, much like uh, California, Maine, New York, West Virginia, and Mississippi, only allow medical exemptions. They do not allow personal belief exemptions or religious exemptions. The existing statute in Minnesota and Louisiana did not explicitly recognize religion as a reason for claiming an exemption. However, as a practical matter, non-medical exemptions may also include religious beliefs. In Virginia, parents can receive a personal exemption only for the HPV vaccine. So everything else is okay, but if it's HPV, then the parents can object. And then Missouri's personal belief exemption does not apply to public schools, only to childcare facilities. So every state has a different take in terms of what exemptions they allow and how they apply them. Non-medical exemptions make parents hesitant. So the presence of them uh, negatively contributes to routine vaccine uptake. Increasing rates of non-medical exemptions to school entry vaccination mandates increases the risk of both vaccine-preventable disease and outbreaks from them. Over nearly three decades, non-medical exemption rates have continued to increase, particularly in states with more lenient exemption criteria. In recent years, numerous legislative proposals have been brought forth that may impact non-medical exemptions, ranging from proposals to both tighten and loosen criteria to receive an exemption to complete removal of non-medical exemptions from state immunization laws. Political action at, at local, state, and federal levels will continue to determine which exemptions are available and how easy those exemptions are to obtain. Since 2009, the number of philosophical belief vaccine non-medical exemptions has risen in 12 of eight, the 18 states that currently allow uh, this policy. Arkansas, Arizona, Idaho, Maine, Minnesota, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Utah. There are several hotspot metropolitan areas that stand out for their very large numbers of non-medical exemptions. They include Seattle, Washington, Spokane, Washington, Portland, Oregon in the Northwest, Phoenix, Arizona, Salt Lake City, Utah, Provo, Utah, Houston, Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, Plano, Texas, and Austin, Texas in the Southwest, Troy, Michigan, Warren, Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, and Kansas City, Missouri in the Midwest, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the Northeast. Texas is highly represented in these hotspots. Studies have consistently found that allowing philosophical and religious exemptions increases exemption rates and decreases vaccination rates. State exemption rates also appear to be correlated with the ease with which non-medical exemptions can be obtained. Studies have consistently found that states with easier exemption requirements in terms of paperwork or the effort required have higher exemption rates and vice versa. Easier exemption regimes were associated not only with higher exemption rates, but also with higher disease outbreak rates. Ease of exemption is determined by each state or territory individually. In 2003, Texas also started to allow philosophical exemptions, requiring those who wanted to be exempted to obtain a form from the Texas Department of Health and to declare their objections in an affidavit. These, these forms are available on the Texas DHSH website, so parents can easily find them and download them. To claim an exclusion for re reasons of conscience, including religious belief, the child's parent, legal guardian, or a student 18 years of age or older must present to the school or childcare facility a completed, signed, and notarized affidavit on the form provided by the department stating that the child's parent, legal guardian, or the student declines vaccinations 
for reasons of conscience, including because of a person's religious beliefs. And that's for Texas. So pretty easy. You get the paperwork, say you don't want it, have it notarized, turn it in. The form must be submitted to the school or the child care facility within 90 days of the date that it's notarized. And the affidavit will be valid for a two-year period from the date of notarization. So that's another way Texas has made it quite easy to get an exemption. Uh, they could require a new form to be filled out every year. In reality, they could require a new form to be filled out every semester. But right now, Texas is quite lenient with what the allowances that it grants. And uh, therefore, Texas falls into one of the uh, more lenient states when it comes to vaccine exemptions. And hence, we're a hotspot. A child or student who has not received immunizations for reasons of conscience, including religious belief, may be excluded from school in times of emergency or epidemic declared by the commissioner of the department. Uh, we have yet to see this in Texas, but I believe in California, right after the Disneyland measles outbreak, the state of California did get much stricter with its vaccine exemptions and also with school exemptions for those who had been unvaccinated up until that point. Most medical associations want to end non-medical exemptions because that makes sense. The American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Infectious Disease Society of America, the American Academy of Family Physicians, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the American College of Physicians all have policy statements that all non-medical exemptions for vaccines should be eliminated. There are multiple other groups that have less strongly worded policy statements that specifically don't call for the end of non-medical exemptions, but all of the listed groups that I just read off have policy statements calling for the end of non-medical exemptions. The removal of non-medical exemptions for mandated vaccinations for school in Texas would require legislative action. Resolution 350 this year in the TMA's House of Delegates Handbook is on the subject of restricting school immunization exemptions to exemptions for medical reasons. This would not aid the nine-valent HPV vaccine as such. It would boost overall vaccination rates in Texas, which would possibly also boost the nine-valent HPV vaccination rate as well. Human papillomavirus, otherwise called HPV, is a viral infection that is passed between people through skin-to-skin -skin contact. There are over 100 varieties of HPV, more of 40 of which are passed through sexual contact and can affect the genitals, mouth, or throat. Most people get genital HPV infections through direct sexual contact, including vaginal, anal, and oral sex. Because HPV is a skin-to-skin -skin infection, intercourse isn't actually required for transmission to occur. Most with HPV are unaware that they have it, and people can concurrently have multiple strains of HPV at the same time or sequentially. More about papillomaviruses. They are small, non-enveloped, icosahedral DNA viruses uh, with a diameter somewhere between 52 and 55 nanometers. The HPV viral particles consist of a single double-stranded DNA molecule of about 8,000 base pairs. Uh, the double-stranded DNA is bound to cellular histones and the double-stranded DNA is contained within a protein capsid composed of 72 pentameric capsomeres. The capsid contains two structural proteins, both of which are virally encoded. There's the late, or L1. It's about 55 kilodaltons in size, and it's about 80% of the total viral protein. And L2, which is about 70 kilodaltons. The L1 and L2 proteins assemble into capsomeres, which form the icosahedral capsules around the viral genome during the generation of progeny virions. So this is important because this is what wraps up our viral DNA and allows it to leave the cells that made it and potentially go infect other cells. Papillomaviruses are highly epitheliotropic. Specifically, they establish productive infections only within the stratified epithelial of the skin and mo most likely in the anogenital and oral cavities. The viral life cycle is linked to the differentiation of the infected epithelial cell. The life cycle is thought to be initiated by infection of the basal epithelial cells, presumably at sites of injury. 
Basal cells comprise the proliferating cellular component of the stratified epithelia in which the viral genome is established. The ability of human papillomaviruses to establish their genome in the basal cells relies upon the virally encoded early proteins E1, E2, and E6, and in some cases, E7. Normally, when basal cells undergo cell division, the daughter cell that loses contact with the basement membrane and migrates into the suprabasal compartment, withdraws from the cell cycle, loses its nucleus, works towards a programmed death pattern, and initiates a program of terminal differentiation. However, in HPV-positive human keratinocytes, the cervical epithelial cells in particular, uh, the suprabasal cells fail to withdraw from the cell cycle and continue to support DNA synthesis when their nuclei should be dying, and then express markers for cell proliferation. Within the suprabasal compartment, cells support the amplification of the viral genome, basically making tons more virus, and the expression of the capsid genes, and also allow for the assembly of the progeny virus. Basically, these infected cells become little warehouses that put together and send out new virus when they should just be dead, boring skin cells. Uh, the currently available HPV vaccine in the United States is the non-avalent or nine-valent HPV vaccine, nine-valent HPV. This replaces the former dye and quadrivalent HPV vaccines. The trade name is Gardasil 9. Uh, it is a non-infectious recombinant prepared from the purified virus-like proteins of the major capsid protein, which is L1, of HPV. Uh, repeated vaccination with the nine-valent HPV series for those who already completed the quadrivalent series is not recommended. The divalent series was not routinely used in the United States, so we don't discuss it particularly often. It was more commonly used in some other countries. The nine-valent HPV vaccine includes immunogenic coverage against seven high-risk or cancer-causing HPV types and two low-risk or wart-causing HPV types. The high-risk HPV types covered in the, in the vaccine include 16, 18, 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58. The low-risk HPV types protected against by this vaccine are 6 and 11. Now, there are about 100 different subtypes of HPV with distinguished variations in its genetic and oncogenic potential that are known. The oncogenic HPV subtypes, which specifically affect the anogenital tracts in humans, are 16, 18, 31, 33, 35, 39, 45, 51, 52, 56, 58, 66, and 69. So you see the vaccine covers a good percentage of them, just about half. Nine-valent HPV therefore covers over half of the known oncogenic HPV strains, but not all of the known oncogenic HPV strains. Cervical cancer screening therefore is recommended on schedule for those who are vaccinated and for those who are not. And uh, the guidelines for screening are a little bit different uh, for the 2020 American Cancer Society and the 2018 United States Preventative Services Task Force. So depending on which guidelines people are using, the guidelines are a little bit different. However, those who are vaccinated and those who are not are supposed to be uh, tested for cervical cancer, one of those two recommended schedules. No current screening guidelines exist at this time for anal or oropharyngeal cancers. HPV vaccines are some of the most effective vaccines worldwide, with data showing efficacy greater than 99% in some populations. On average, HPV vaccines are greater than 90% effective. In Australia and Sweden in particular, with very high vaccination rates and large vaccine registries, uh, we have seen uh, significantly reduced HPV-related cancers, especially cervical cancer. Here is one representation of a nine-valent HPV schedule. Age 15 is the big determiner for this vaccine schedule. If you're under the age of 15, when you get your first vaccine, you will only get a total of two. Uh, you will get your second vaccine, preferably six to 12 months after your first. But let's just say the patient wasn't able to get a vaccine for a couple of years. As long as the first one was done before the age of 15, 
Whenever they get around to it, they just receive one more vaccine. For everybody else who was not quite so lucky and started their vaccine series after the age of 15, it will be given on a three-part series, given typically at month zero, month two, and month six. And that's for everybody above the age of 15, including our catch-up folks in the age group from 27 to 45 years of age. But if you start less than 15 years of age, or more exactly between ages nine and 14, that you get the two doses, typically somewhere between six to 12 months apart. And if you start anytime after the age of 15, or if you have a compromised immune system at any age, and we'll discuss that a little bit further, then you get three vaccines. Routinely, the vaccine is being recommended for students uh, between the ages 11 and 12 years of age. Vaccination as early as nine years is an option for all children and is also specifically recommended for those who have a history of sexual abuse or assault. Catch-up vaccination is recommended for all adolescents who are 13 years of age or older. The minimal acceptable interval between vaccines for the two-part series is five months. Typically, the recommendation is to make it be at least six months. Now on to the compromised immune system. The three-dose schedule includes conditions that include reduced cell-mediated or humoral immunity, such as B lymphocyte antibody deficiencies, T lymphocyte complete or partial uh, defects, HIV, malignant neoplasm, transplantation, autoimmune disease, or immunosuppressive therapy. The recommendation for a three-dose schedule does not apply to persons less than 15 years of age who have a splenia, asthma, chronic granulomatous disease, chronic liver disease, chronic lung disease, chronic renal disease, central nervous system anatomic barrier defects such as cochlear implants, complement deficiency, diabetes, heart disease, or sickle cell disease. So uh, very specific categories for what counts as a compromised immune system requiring a three-part series. Uh, recommended uh, for all persons age up through 26 is the standard. Shared clinical decision-making is in effect for those who are above the age of 27 up through the age of 45 who may not have been adequately vaccinated or vaccinated at all. The minimal acceptable interval between the first and second doses is four weeks, and the minimal acceptable interval is 12 weeks between the second and the third dose. But again, we don't recommend variation from the general recommended zero to six-month schedule. Additionally, if the vaccination schedule is interrupted, the series never needs to be restarted. The number of recommended doses is always based on the age of administration of the first dose, specifically age 15, and the nine-valent HPV vaccine may be used to continue or complete a vaccination series started with the quadrivalent HPV vaccine or divalent HPV vaccine. Uh, most of those folks have either completed their vaccination series or decided not to continue at all. Uh, this is applying to fewer and fewer people, but you can finish off with the nine valent and not have to start again with the nine valent series. So age 15 is the magic number for those determining the future number of vaccines. If the series is started by age 15, it's a two-shot series. Use this as a selling point. Fewer sticks for the child, which is improved comfort. Fewer trips for the parent, that's improved ease, and less time away from school or extracurriculars, which is better for the child. If started after the age of 15 years, it will be a three-shot series. And the side effects are exactly what you'd expect from any IM vaccine. Pain, redness, or swelling in the arm where it was given. Fever, dizziness, fainting, though fainting after any vaccine, including the HPV vaccine, is much more common in our adolescents. So there's a special caveat for, for adolescent vaccines based on that. Nausea, headache, feeling tired, muscle or joint pain. To prevent fainting and injuries related to fainting, adolescents should be vaccinated, seated or lying down, and they should remain that way for 15 minutes after the vaccine is administered. So that's for any vaccine, including flu shots, Tdap, Minactwe, Gardasil, that are given to a teenager. There are, however, some true contraindications for the non-avalent HPV vaccine. Hypersensitivity, including severe allergic reactions to yeast, which is a vaccine component, or after a previous dose of Gardasil 9 or Gardasil that caused some form of hypersensitivity.
over 12 years of monitoring and research have shown that the HPV vaccine is incredibly safe. The disinformation of later female infertility and those who are vaccinated as children persists on the internet and upsets parents who read it. There is no evidence to suggest that HPV vaccines cause any fertility problems in men or women. The vaccine is not recommended for use in pregnant girls or women, but can be started or continued while breastfeeding. In November of 2019, initial post-licensure safety monitoring of Gardasil 9 was published in Pediatrics. In two separate articles, analysis from the VARES reports and the VSD were presented. Both included multiple years of data and did not identify any unexpected safety problems with Gardasil 9. These findings support the favorable safety profile that was established in pre-licensure clinical trials. Finally, numerous research studies have shown that getting the HPV vaccine does not make kids more likely to be sexually active or start having sex at a younger age. That was one of the uh, concerns that continued to pop up when the vaccine first became available. Uh, and it's been an ongoing concern, at least on internet forums. Neither of those things have been proven to be true. Healthy People 2030 goal is that 80% of adolescents between the ages of 13 and 15 receive the recommended doses of HPV vaccine. Healthy People 2030's HPV vaccination goal is unchanged from the 2020 goal. By 2018, only 48% of adolescents between the ages of 13 and 15 had met the goal set by Healthy People 2020. So we're very much lagging for this. However, both TDAPT and NACWA coverage rates have surpassed their Healthy People 2020 goals of 80%. And the focus is now for maintenance of coverage for them. Data from the 2016 National Immunization Survey teen showed that completion of the HPV vaccine series, applying updated vaccine recommendations retrospectively, increased to 45.4% for 15-year-olds, still far below the Healthy People 2020 goal of 80%. The passage of the Affordable Care Act, which mandates that certain preventative service, including ASEP-recommended immunizations, be covered as part of a basic care at no cost sharing, reduces the once common financial barrier to vaccine uptake, but a key contributor to low uptake of HPV vaccination by adolescents is parental refusal. More than one third of parents, 36%, report have, having ever refused or intentionally delayed HPV vaccination for their adolescent children. Higher hesitancy was shown for non-monovalent HPV vaccines than for Tdapt and Menacwe, which are due at similar times, specifically adolescents. So we show HPV immunization data from 2018 and the percentage of adolescents who are up to date on HPV vaccination. Texas is at 40 to 49%. And there are a fair number of states that are 60% or above. We just don't happen to be one of them. So when we looked at those through 2018, who are between the ages of 13 and 17, who'd had one or more vaccination, we saw that Texas unfortunately is the bottom quintile for vaccination coverage for HPV, with at least in 2016, just barely above a third of people receiving that vaccine. And then by 2019, closer to two thirds. However, compared to other states, we're in the bottom quintile for vaccine acceptance. For those with two or more vaccines, and remember the guidelines did change in this time frame. they changed in 2016. So two or more may actually complete the series for a lot of our patients. We were still in the bottom quintile was still just barely above a third of students having those vaccines. Uh, and then by 2018, increasing a little bit, but still not yet close to two thirds. And then when we looked at those with three or more vaccines, again, the guidelines did change in this time interval that we remain again in the bottom quintile of states in terms of vaccination for HPV. And this data point is a little bit less useful now because the guidelines have stated, if you're 15 or below, you only need two shots. So this data point is going to become in the future somewhat irrelevant. Uh, Incidence and prevalence of HPV, this is why we care. This is why we wanna vaccinate. HPV infections are some of the most commonly transmitted infections in the United States. 
nearly all men and women will be exposed to one or more types of HPV at some point in their lives. Current data show that 79 million Americans, most in their late teens and early 20s, are infected with HPV. About 14 million people in the United States become newly infected with HPV each year. HPV is a DNA tumor virus that causes epithelial proliferation at cutaneous and mucosal surfaces. Using population-based data to genotype HPV types from different cancer tissues, the CDC reports that HPV is responsible for many cancers, about 90% of cervical and anal cancers, 70% of oropharyngeal, vaginal, and vulvar cancers, about 60% of penile cancers. A significant percentage of these cancers would potentially be prevented by receipt of the non-avalent HPV vaccine while HPV naive or not yet exposed. All right, so this data is from the American Cancer Society or cancer.org, and you can look at this data yourself. Anticipated cervical cancer cases in 2021, 90% of which are due to HPV. We think there should be about 14,480 new cases of invasive cervical cancer, and of them, 4,290 women will be expected to die this year because of cervical cancer. Regarding anal cancer in 2021, again, 90% of those cases due to HPV, 9,090 new cases are anticipated, 6,070 in women, 3,020 in men, and about 1,430 deaths. About 870 women and 560 men are expected to die in 2021 alone. Moving on to oropharyngeal cancer, uh, about 70% of those are due to HPV. Huge numbers. 54,010 people will get an oral cavity or oropharyngeal cancer uh, in 2021, as anticipated by the American Cancer Society. 10,850 of those will die from these cancers. The anticipated vaginal cancer in 2021, of which 70% of the cases will be due to HPV, is pretty low. It's about 1% to 2% of the cancers of the female genital tract, and uh, death from this mercifully is rare. For anticipated vulvar cancer in 2021, 70% of those cases due to HPV, we think there should be about 6,120 cancers, and about 1,550 of those women will die from these cancers. And then to not leave the men out, penile cancer uh, in 2021, 60% of which should be related to HPV, we expect 2,210 new cases, and we expect about 460 deaths uh, this year. Thus, the American Cancer Society anticipates around 85,910 cancer cases in these susceptible tissues in 2021. The American Cancer Society anticipates about 18,580 cancer deaths for these tissues in 2021. Future generations, if properly vaccinated, will be spared most of these cancer diagnoses. Oropharyngeal cancer was the most common cancer covered by the HPV vaccine in all states, except for Texas, where cervical cancer was the most common, and that's data from 2012 to 2016. Among the greater than 34,800 cancers probably caused by HPV in 2016, 92% were attributable to HPV types that were included in the non-avalent HPV vaccine and could be prevented if HPV vaccine recommendations were followed. So what are some barriers to vaccine coverage? Lack of regular assessment of vaccine status, limited use of electronic records or tools or immunization registries, lack of healthcare provider knowledge on current vaccine recommendations, costs, missed opportunities, and patient or parent refusals. So what can we do in Texas to improve HPV vaccine uptake? Use every visit as an opportunity to vaccinate. One national study showed that at least 86% of unvaccinated adolescents had missed opportunities to receive the HPV vaccine. Give the vaccines concomitantly, so simultaneously or at least the same day. Immediately schedule those follow-up visits. Use your recall and reminder systems. Don't just put it off. Get them on the schedule for that six-month visit, for that two-month visit, whatever it requires. Tell parents why the timing is important. Make the parents have some buy-in. Let them know that if they start the vaccine series today, their child only needs two shots. If they wait a couple months, their child will turn 15 
and then the child will require three shots. Do the vaccine series, start it today, fewer shots for your child. How you say it as a physician matters. Several studies have shown that a strong provider recommendation for HPV vaccination leads to a greater likelihood of vaccine uptake, and it is the most likely to be the most influential factor. Your child is getting three important shots today, Tdap, meningitis, and HPV. What you don't say is, are we doing all three shots today? Make the statement declarative, don't ask it as a question. Even if school districts do not require non-avalent HPV vaccine for school attendance, the physician should treat it with as much importance as the others. Bundling the non-avalent HPV vaccine with Tdap and meningitis vaccines is highly effective. Do not prevent the vaccines as optional versus required, as they are all recommended by ACIP for adolescent health. So provide very strong presumptive HPV recommendations. This is associated with improved parent vaccination attitudes and acceptance. It does not seem to have any significant negative impacts, even among parents who are vaccine hesitant. Receipt of a presumptive recommendation was associated with the lower likelihood of having concerns about a vaccine safety, a lower vaccine hesitancy, and increased likelihood of vaccination, all things that we want. You can also use the case approach when responding to parent concerns about vaccines. So what is the case approach? It's the corroborate about me science and explain advice approach. So corroborate, you express a shared value that underlines the concern. You and I both want your child to remain healthy. About me, make a statement with an and rather than a but that emphasizes your professional standing and expertise relevant to the shared value. Uh, the science, you summarize the science, referring to the science that supports you on the concern with regard to the shared value, again, your child's long-term health. Explain the advice. Explain why you're giving this advice and restate your strong recommendation, and you know, especially to vaccinate today, in terms of the shared belief and the science. So let me give you a hypothetical situation when discussing things with parents. You talk with your, your parents of your child, specifically your patient, and uh, the parents say back to you, okay, doc, we'll get those other two shots, but our child doesn't need that HPV vaccine today. And you say, may I ask why? And they say, oh, our school doesn't require the Gardasil shot, and our family believes that sex is only for committed married relationships, so we just don't need it. Our child doesn't need that shot. Uh, what you need to respond with, or something similar, is that the non-avalent vaccine is very important, even if your school doesn't require it. Our doctors feel that all people, including your child, deserve to be protected against cancer, and nobody has a, knows the future with 100% certainty. I've learned that many of my married couples dated at least a few people before they got married, and that even those with the best attentions may have had some exposure to HPV beforehand, even through something as simple as kissing. I think that most people have kissed at least a few other people before they got married. And then theoretical parents say, wait, what? HPV can be transmitted by kissing? Ew, I had no idea. And you'd say, well, we don't know for sure, but we do know that HPV is found in the tonsils. HPV directly causes 70% of head and neck cancers, and there were over 50,000 new cases of those in the last year alone. We don't know how exactly vigorous of a kiss it takes to transmit HPV, but it's at least theoretically possible. And your child is at the age where the nine-valent HPV vaccine provides the best lifetime protection against these cancers, regardless of what happens in the future. I'd really like to protect your child against future cancers. So don't give up as many parents will ultimately acquiesce, if not at this appointment, then at a future appointment. This is called secondary acceptance. Describe the robust safety monitoring system that goes into all vaccines, including Gardasil or monovalent HPV vaccines. Contest unfounded views. This may or may not be helpful. There are some recent studies that indicate pursuing educational efforts to reverse vaccine hesitancy can seem to backfire, strengthening parents' negative attitudes and beliefs. However, uh, the child will most likely be in the room with you and may be listening and may be interested in what you have to say in a way the parents are not. 
So I would still say speaking truthful statements about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine has value. Just know that if you have a highly resistant set of parents, uh, that they may dig in their heels a bit more. Secondary acceptance of HPV vaccination is common, with more than two-thirds of parents in this national sample accepting or intending to accept HPV vaccination after an initial declination. Uh, doctors should seek to motivate secondary acceptance by delivering repeated high-quality recommendations for HPV vaccination. Parents' most commonly reported reasons for secondary acceptance of monovalent HPV were the child getting older, about 45% of the parents said that, learning more about HPV vaccines and their safety, 34%, and receiving a clinician recommendation, 33%. The least frequently reported reason was the belief that their child might become sexually active. Only 7% of parents reported that. So you as a physician probably should focus on the fact that their child is getting older, uh, that they've had some opportunity to learn about the vaccine, and that you continue to recommend it. Don't focus quite so much on the fact that their child may in the future, at some point, have a sexual exposure. Follow-up counseling is important for secondary acceptance. Parents who received counseling from their uh, child's clinician had more than twice the odds of reporting that they accepted the HPV at a later visit. Uh, even in the case of parents who decline, high-quality clinical communication might prime them for further to further consider their decision and to move towards acceptance. The CDC has a nice handout uh, that you can access online for the top 10 tips for HPV vaccination success. Um, I strongly recommend you take a look at that. Also talking to parents about HPV vaccine, another great flyer available for free from the CDC uh, if you would like to reference it as well. Thank you, Dr. Stewart, for this eye-opening information and helpful talking tips. I will provide links to these flyers and other resources in the episode description. Thank you. To our listeners, we hope you found this episode beneficial. To claim CME, go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's C-M-E-T-O-G-O. Register for this episode to access the additional materials and resources and follow the instructions to claim CME. Remember to like and follow TMA Practice Well to receive more helpful tips. Until next time, stay well.